Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour with some more great guests. Coming up on today's show, we'll be looking at Michelin stars and millionaires. I'll also be heading over to Ryanair to see what's happening there as they've been buying up Boeing's bedrooms and now partnering with digital platforms, if you don't mind. We got lots of feedback last week on where our office is, that piece we did about offices and the locations. Also this week we learned about Ernst & Young in London, monitoring staff electronically and Musk sacking people for not coming into the office. So still clearly a long way to go on all of that. But thanks very much for getting in touch. We do love to hear your comments. And if you want to get in touch with us, our email is takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, just take a quick listen to this. Who wants to be a millionaire? I don't. Have flashy flunkies everywhere. Well, who wants to be a millionaire indeed? I'm joined now by a lady who's been looking closely at the habits of millionaires for quite some time now. And she joins me on the line. Tiffany Maudlin, welcome to Taking Stock. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, Tiffany, you're co-author of this book with your father, John Maudlin, and it's been a long time in the making. Tell us why you guys decided to write it. And more importantly, I think, tell us about the process uh, of putting it all together. Yeah, so in... um John Malden, in his own right, you know, is a New York Times bestseller of of what us kids call his dense economic books, right? And um, I I've worked for him and with him for a number of years on different projects and companies. And in two thousand eight, I had I woke up from a dream and uh, very vividly wrote it down in the middle of the night. And um, this is all in the beginning of the book, how it came about to. Um, interview, we work with high net worth investors, interview some of those millionaires and find out their stories. And um, we did a survey of of people and about 18,000 people took that surveys. And because his list um, has a higher net worth than others, about half of those were millionaires. And it was a long survey, about about 200 questions back then. And um, we learned a lot from that. And then we just asked for interviews and we had more acceptances than we were able to do. But at that time, we did about 125 interviews. And we had some preliminary additional survey questions and um, little essays, questions that they could answer before the interview. And we spent about an hour to an hour and a half with each of them. And um, he went to his publisher here in the States, and they said, go for it. And what happened is life happened. I got married. I had a baby. We started another company. And in about 2015, um, I thought, why don't we find out what happened to them? I mean, what happened? We had the Great Recession, right? What happened to them? What were they thinking? How did their lives turn out, their investments? And so I reached back out and found about another 25 of them. Um, More than that, but we we stuck with about 25 and we did another round of interviews. Um, And at this time, I'd still been researching this world. You know, there's there's some very well-known millionaire books out there and going through what their advice was. And again, we found that there was not one way. Mm. We, we had all of this information, you know, thousands and thousands of surveys and questions answering, you know, how they made it, what their background was, you, um, you know, what kind of cars they drove even. And 
in the interviews, it was still, there, there wasn't one way. And there's some great books out there, uh, you know, about real estate or about just saving a lot, you know, and not spending or, um, you know, investing it and letting the compound interest ride and, you know, specifically, but, but we found it was any of those ways and sometimes more, right. Um, living off your wife so you could invest all you have yeah, and then, and then create the business. It was all across the board. And, um, so we had, we had a few curves in the roads and that was me personally. And, um, I would always come back to these interviews and I became very fond. I do have this huge, huge heart for everyone that gave their time. And um, this book was more to honor them. And in 2020, right before everything shut down, I was walking um, on the beach with my father where he lives in Puerto Rico. And I just had this sense that this was it. Like I wanted to, I wanted to do one more time. We'd had a lot more happen since then. And um, so over the course of 2020 and into 21, we did a third round of interviews and, uh, you know, at that time, COVID was happening. So there was a lot of emotions. There was a lot of vulnerability um, that came through in those. And um, a theme of, regardless of the age, this is what was fascinating to me, of our millionaires, um, whether they were, you know, we started in their 30s or whether we started in their 60s, you know, 16 years later, there was this deep theme of self-growth that had happened. Um and it was like catching up with old friends. And um, so we did another survey in 2023 and got another few thousands. And we had um, a large portion of those were the same. We'd went out with just email addresses. We didn't have names attached to the surveys. Um, the same people from 2008 took it. So then we have this data comparing these same people in 2008 with the same questions we ask in 2023. And that that became a whole different part statistically of the study that I wasn't able necessarily to put in this book because for me, it became more about the stories. And most of these people were everyday people. Yeah. And, 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 necessarily and for money. Yeah. And you ultimately end up with 10 people, I think it is in the book. Is that right? Yeah. They uh, cut me off at 10. <laughs> you profiled. So just to recap there then, um, you, you check basically selected a number of people who are millionaires and you checked in with them over a long period of time. And this book is actually not like a normal book about millionaires because I've, I've gone I've gone through, I've read it myself. It is their stories. It's not a how to get rich quick guide. It is the stories of the people and how they have progressed over quite a long period of time. So it does cover a lot. And Tiffany, you mentioned there, there's no one way. And, and what you do say in the book a lot, particularly at the beginning, is a pathway. You talk about pathways. Um, so maybe you'll give us a sense of the type of people who are profiled in this book. Yes. And so um, it it isn't in the book specifically, but we had different races and different international backgrounds. Um, you know, it's, it's alluded to in some of the, the stories. And um, I didn't notice well, any women in the book. Do you know that was that was what I did have a caveat of that in the beginning because we we had some couples we interviewed um, and we did have some women and fifteen um, percent of our interviews were international and that just became a unfortunate event as I am a woman because I had more interviews for the book and um, it just happened the the word count from the publisher was capped at that 10 and those were the 10 that remained. And I am hopeful to do that in the next book, continue on because, yeah, there's, because especially I, the couples, it was very interesting. Um, 
and and women that managed the money for their household. They were the millionaires, you know? Mm. Yeah, because I do think if, if and we're going to get to talk to the traits that might be similar between millionaires in a moment, it's kind of hard to discuss in a rounded way that without assessing whether women's attitude is fundamentally different to men. But anyway, let's just talk about the, the people you did profile. So there's 10 people in here. I'm just trying to give our listeners a sense of the different types of background because some people who made it and became millionaires came from very humble beginnings and some people kind of knew they were destined. Yeah, there I mean we had we had some immigrants, you know, an immigrant that came over. We had um a man that grew up in a very um distressed home. And then we had we had others that grew up in, you know, what would be considered middle class. Um and then we had one in this that that came from money, you know, and what he was going to do with that. Um, a family business, you know, mm. and, and so, but regardless, you know, I keep saying there's, and you, you mentioned that I said there was no one, one way, way is what we found, but what we did find is there were commonalities that were surprising amongst them. And, um, outside of these 10, this is the same commonalities that actually were with these 10, I think, but one is they followed something that they liked to do. Yes, and that does come across very strongly in the book if it's something they enjoy doing and sometimes they pivot kind of midway in career and find something that they really enjoy doing and that's the key, isn't it, really? And if, that if, was the successful... And they used the word... Um, it, it didn't seem fun to go the other way. Mm. It, it wasn't something I enjoyed or I realized I wasn't enjoying it. And I mean, there's, there's someone in the book that actually uses the word pivot. So I, I had to look at what was not working and pivot. Yeah. So I think that's that's a, that's the great um, advantage of the book is really that uh, you do come away with the sense that the commonality there was that they like something. But other commonalities maybe that you found, what about the idea of risk? Because we all do associate, whether it's right or wrong, that idea that to be a good entrepreneur, to be a great business person, you have to be willing to risk it. You know, and uh, even there's one story in particular in the book where um, he he takes he sells his business, he takes his savings, and he invests in this um, production that needs to be done in China of these watches, and he loses it all, right? Mm. And um, and in that sense, there's stories of risk they took, but the the underlying theme from all of them is it's not what you make, it's what you keep, you know, is one. Or, um, you know, don't risk what you can't lose. Mm. That That is the major theme. Yes, there are risk involves and there's mistakes and there's, I'm learning from those, but most of them didn't, didn't go out to get rich and didn't risk everything for that goal. They were still risking everything with principles behind it and knowing that because there were other structures in life, they, they, you know, couldn't quote unquote monetarily afford to lose it, but they knew they'd be okay if they did. Mm. And that was, that was a key difference in taking the risk. They weren't betting the farm. Mm. If you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to Tiffany Maudlin and she is the co-author of a book. It's called Eavesdropping on Millionaires, Investment Strategies and Advice on How to Build and Maintain Wealth. Um, Tiffany, one of the other things that you have in the book is a piece of research where you kind of um, do a survey of non-millionaires and millionaires. Was there anything in that that either surprised you, either because they're the same or they're drastically different? Uh, yes. And I, you know, 
I really, really, I think we're going to actually hand off this data to um, a, a research tank that can can do it more justice. Um, some some fun things, a fun thing that I found that was surprising was millionaires tend to read science fiction more than non-millionaires. Interesting. Uh, that surprised me. On just the um, basic outlook on life, non-millionaires um, tend to think that uh, if you have money that you're stuck up or you don't deserve it. Non-millionaires and, think that. Yes. Yes. Or that um, they have to work hard. They have to work hard for it. Um, and and millionaires tend to think that there's a lot of luck and right time, right place involved. Mm. Um, I, I was just, while I was waiting for this setup, I pulled some of the international charts Um and I think this one's quite fun. I wish I could show it to you in person. I'll probably send it to you. Um, international. The, the question was: um, Do you believe that millionaires are less spiritual? And for the international crowd, as they become their net worth goes up, right? We started about a, you know ninety nine thousand and below and and up. As their net worth grows for the international. Um, they believe that millionaires are not less spiritual. They are more spiritual. And the United States millionaires believe that millionaires become less. So, and this is according to that worth. So mm. The richer they are, they think maybe their peers are less spiritual over their lives. Yeah, that's that kind of fascinating. There's other interesting questions in there, like, can I really have anything I desire? And uh, I think the difference between millionaires and non-millionaires is almost directly inverted in terms of uh, who believes they can and they can't. Um, Tiffany, just to, to finish us off on this, and I should say again, the book is called Eavesdropping on Millionaires. And and um, I wanted to ask you, what are the key takeaways that you took from this book? For me personally, and I think hopefully it translates to others, is that there was something in all of their lives that was inspiring to them that they they caught. And not everything's inspiring to everyone. And that's kind of my hope for this book is that there's something that makes you pause and you're like, okay, I, I see that. I could do that. Um, but also there was a sense of always having someone around, whether it was on purpose, which was a lot of them, or on accident, some sort of mentor, some sort of accountability to throw ideas with, and this desire for helping others. Mm. This was, whether it was growing their team, whether it was, there was a lot of giving back, whether it was in their home church or, you know, charitable contributions or building something. Um, but, but the biggest thing I think my takeaway that I didn't realize until after the book was finished and didn't put it in there. There was not a lot of fear of cycles. There, there was an understanding that recessions happen, business cycles happen, which means that when you're in the underside of that, it's it's going to come up the other way. Mm. And, and being able to adapt to that. Well, Tiffany, it is a very interesting book and we look forward to the sequel, which is going to be called Eavesdropping on Female Millionaires, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but uh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us today. That was Tiffany Malden, co-author of Eavesdropping on Millionaires. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up, hanging out with millionaires is all very well. But do you need to be a millionaire to make it to a Michelin star restaurant? Stay tuned. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnson. Now take a quick listen to this. I didn't realise they shrank down that much, Chef. It's a bit like your brain. Not only has it shrunk, but it's disappeared. What he took off 
And there's the fillet. Look at the fillet! We fucking wasted the most expensive half. Look at it! Ring the bell. Come here, you muppet! What a muppet. Gail! Look, I've got raw pasta. Look at it. It's standing up straight. Look, madam. It's like a thong left over from a fucking night out in Vegas. Come on! That was, of course, the coursing invective of one Gordon Ramsay, uh, which is unmistakable. Because this week, the Michelin uh, Star Guide named six Irish restaurants as the recipient of the Bib Gourmand status in the 2024 edition of the UK and Ireland Guide. The Michelin system is known as the Super League for chefs. It's the most important and influential restaurant guide in the world, and it's been around since the early 1900s. But how did it all get started? Why do so many people loathe the guide itself? Well, I'm joined now by Tom Dorley, who is food and wine columnist for The Sunday Times. Tom, you're very welcome. Hi, Mandy. Good to be with you. Tom, the Michelin Guide itself, uh, just before we get stuck into whether it's worthy or worthwhile uh, or even effective as a, as, a, as a business asset, maybe just take us right back to where it started, because I guess a lot of people wouldn't really realise how and where it all kicked off. Yeah, absolutely, Mandy. Well, uh, it goes back to um, originally the 1880s, uh, where a, um, a tyre company, rubber company in Clermont-Ferrand in the north of France uh, decided uh, there, were, there were only about 3,000 cars in France at the time. So they decided they needed to tell people where they could get their tyres. So they produced a guide to where you could get the tyres. And then they added in places that you could stay and places that you could eat. And until 1920, they gave it away free. Uh, but they they decided that, you know, if if people get something for free, they probably don't value it. So they, they upped their game in 1920 and they launched the Michelin Guide. As we know it these days, details of hotels, restaurants and so on and so forth. For many years, it was France only, and it could be argued that uh, it's still very Franco-centric, if that's a word. However, it is, as you say, very influential, and chefs tend to get very excited about Michelin stars and big gourmands. They certainly do. Uh, Now, I'm just trying to figure out if we get very excited about it and and whether we should, because I'm trying to understand, first of all, the stars themselves and and the criteria. So maybe kick off with a star. What's the difference between a one star and a three star? And can you get a three star if you've got a one star? Is it a ranking system? How does that work? Uh, It is a kind of ranking system, yeah. Essentially, three stars is, you know, kind of the the ultimate. Mm. Uh, Two stars is very, very good. I I should explain, they're all very expensive. Um, uh, Two stars in Ireland, for example, we've got Chapter One, Restaurant Patrick Gilbo, so forth. Um, And then you have one star. Um, My beef... (laughs) <laughs> no pun intended, with Michelin is a lack of consistency. Mm. So um, I think what you'll find in all honesty is that a, uh, a one-star restaurant in Ireland uh, will be, if you, trans- if you somehow manage to translate it to France or even to London, would very often be a two-star restaurant. Um, There are 
restaurants without any stars or, or any bib gourmand uh, in Ireland, which if you translated them to France or Italy or Spain, uh, would probably have a star. So while Michelin tell us that there are very strict criteria and so forth, um, uh, I think it's fairly flexible. It's, mm. a bit rubber, it's a bit rubbery, so to speak. Again, forgive uh, the pun. <laughs> this all started as a marketing ploy for the tyres. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. you do you think, Tom, then because of our location and our size um, that we're maybe affected yeah. by that? Yeah, I, I think there's a very strong correlation in Michelin between uh, population density and the number of stars. Now, you, you could also argue that population density uh, does automatically lead to more restaurants, more serious restaurants. Yeah, fair enough. But I think Michelin take it a little bit beyond that. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I think, to be fair about it, until comparatively recently, Ireland was fairly close to the edge of the radar as as far as Michelin was concerned. I think they are they are taking Ireland a lot more seriously uh, in recent years, and certainly their inspectors are pretty active around Dublin and around the the country. It's it, incidentally. Um, one one uh, ex Michelin inspector has written a, a book about how how absolutely ghastly it is to be a, a Michelin guide inspector because while people might think it's absolutely wonderful to be paid to go out and eat and drink in in, in fabulous restaurants, uh, they have to do it on their own. They have to do um, so many restaurants a day. Uh, you know, they're they're you know it, it's it's yeah. lonely and very grim. Yeah, well, God, God love them, Tom. That they're hardly making widgets in a factory now. It's hard. To have a well, bit no, of sympathy I mean, for, I, yeah, I mean it, it. It is all it is all relative, yeah. but I but I I suppose the thing to bear in mind about that is that Michelin inspectors experience restaurants in a in a, a very different way uh, to the way the rest of us do. When we go to a restaurant, we do it for for fun, and we we do it in company. And um, I I suppose you could argue that. Because we tend to go in company, it distracts us a little bit from the food and the service. Mm. And they would argue that they see everything very objectively and uh, and very very clearly. And maybe maybe there's something in that. Um, I I am reminded of a, a great line from the late A. A. Gill, who was the restaurant critic of the Sunday Times. Um, uh, until a few years ago, he said that he had spoken to a number of uh, Michelin-starred chefs about, you know, what it was like having a star, uh, what it was like getting a star in the first place. And he said one one chef who had to remain nameless said, uh, your restaurant fills up with people with faces like smacked bottoms who <laughs> complain about everything. And uh, I thought, yeah, that must be a bundle of laughs. Yeah, and, but you and, can imagine and, it would actually bring a bit of pressure with it. And that's that's another well, question, it, like how do you retain well, it? it? Do, you, do you have to keep those standards yeah, up? Yeah, you, you know, I, I think the poor chefs, they, they, they worry about getting a Michelin star. Mm. And and then when they if they get a Michelin star, they worry about hanging on to it. 
uh, and if they're you know if 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 they've upped their game, mm. they're they're worried about maybe not getting a second one. And, yeah, um, it all seems to for me, it all seems to distract from the you know what what makes restaurant hospitality you know a wonderful thing. Um, it it's um, you know it 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 it's like a. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. It, it. It's like something that is unrelated to the enjoyment of, of going to a restaurant. And yet it's sort of hugely important to the people in the restaurant. Maybe that's Sorry. why they're they're spending a bit more time and effort this year, it seems at least, in um, promoting this the, the other element of the Michelin Guide, which is the big with the bib gourmand. So this seems to be more accessible. Can you just talk us through a bit of yeah. that and how it dif- um, difference the differences between that and the main Michelin star? Sure. The the um I I think the way Michelin uh defined themselves is that it's you know, they're they're good value restaurants. The the you have to be able to eat there with a glass of wine for below a certain uh figure, uh which I don't have off the top of my head. But yeah, they, they are accessible restaurants, they're they're less formal. Um, now there have always been, or they, there's always been in recent years, uh, bib gourmands, which are, if you like, the, the sort of second string to the Michelin Guide, um, and certainly the ones that have been awarded this year in Ireland uh, are all very deserving indeed. And um, I'm thinking particularly of La Gordita in Dublin, the the Spanish restaurant, and also Amy Austin on um, Drury Street, um, you know, who are doing really interesting and exciting and high quality things at a reasonably affordable price. Mm. Um, So, um, but it would be a mistake to think that the Bib Gourmand is absolutely brand new or that they're putting more emphasis on it. It's just that they announced the Bib Gourmands before they announced the stars. Oh, okay. So my mis- like. maybe I'm only paying attention to it, to it suddenly. But Tom, I want to ask you, go yeah, back to the, sure. the Michelin star yeah. for a second, because, you know, I started out on this kind of journey of mine to try and understand the star system itself. The other thing I wanted to learn about was the criteria. So I looked up the five criteria and I'm glad you mentioned chefs a moment ago because I want to ask you specifically about that. Yeah. So the five criteria are the quality of the ingredients used, the flavour and cooking techniques, fair enough. The personality of the chef, which I'll come back to. Value for money and consistency between visits. Can you just explain to me, um, an ordinary punter, how the personality of the chef is calculated or how, how do you see that if somebody has developed a lifelong bond with a beetroot or something because of where they come from? Exactly. Um, I have to say that's the one criterion of Michelin that I I I don't I don't understand I I don't get it all because oh God, I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> I mean they have awarded uh, Michelin stars, particularly sort of the two and three stars, to chefs whose personality would be you know <laughs> in general terms seriously dysfunctional because they are so obsessed with what they're doing. They're definitely not somebody you'd necessarily want to have a pint with, if you know what I mean. So what do they mean about the personality of the chef? Well, I mean, it is the personality of the chef supposed to get into the dish? <laughs> is the chef supposed to come out and say, hi, how are you? 
Yeah. Um, because well, listening to Gordon Ramsay there, nobody wants to see him at the table. Just to bring me to my final point, uh, Tom, if I can ask you this, at nowhere when I was looking up about um, the, the Michelin Guide, and look, we have to say this is a great thing for a restaurant to get in Ireland and we're delighted that, you know, they're paying a bit more attention to Ireland. But one of the things that's missing a lot from the evaluation process, for me anyway, is the service yeah. element of it. Because you said rightly yeah. there, we don't, we experience a restaurant, we like to go there we like you know it's a treat yeah. for lots of people so well, why doesn't sir or does service really come into it do, do the surroundings come into it they say it doesn't but like you know they say it doesn't but I think it definitely does mm. uh, I mean I think unless you've got crisp linen and sparkling wine glasses and smart waiters uh, and a nice paint job and uh, lovely surroundings I don't think you're going to be easily considered for a Michelin star. Mm. Now, having said that, Michelin, of course, underline what they say about this not being taken into consideration by, uh, you know, they have given a Michelin star to to a fried chicken uh, stall in, I think it's Singapore, somewhere in Southeast Asia, um, which definitely doesn't have crisp linen and nice sparkling wine glasses and nice surrounding. But Look, let's be realistic. Most Michelin star restaurants have exactly, as you say, you know, um, uh, heel clicking service, um, you know, nice tablecloths and everything else. We we know what those restaurants look like. And yeah, that's I, I think Michelin are being quite disingenuous by saying, oh, no, 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 it's got nothing to do with that at all. It's all about the food. It's all about the food. Well, yeah. Um, you know, the food is certainly very, very important. Um, but, and it's interesting that they talk about consistency in food. I just wish they'd be a little bit more consistent about how they award stars. Indeed, Tom, thank you so much for those sage words. Sorry, the puns are never ending here today. But it leads us to that question, can food, culture really be evaluated globally? We certainly haven't uh, come down on, on, on either side today. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Tom Durley, food and wine columnist with the Sunday Times. Thank you very much for being with us today. This is Taking Stock here on News Talk and after the break we'll speak to Jerry Byrne, aviation journalist, about the latest goings on at Ryanair and how it all might affect your summer travels. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now for our final item today, we're going to look at Ryanair because this week we saw it cut its profit expectations for the year to the end of March after some online travel agents stopped selling its flights. But what's behind the online travel agents row and just how much, if any, damage has it done? Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by Jerry Byrne, aviation journalist. Jerry, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Mandy. Now, um, I mentioned there at the outset this online agents row. What's behind this row? Profit. Profit, yes, most things are at Ryanair. But has something changed recently to, to start this or what, what's, what's afoot? Well, what has happened was, I mean, the, the main trigger was a judgment that Ryanair got in the Dublin High Court recently, um, last month, I say last month, actually in December, and that effectively um, outlawed um, what Ryanair tends to call screen scraping. Now, screen scraping is where a travel agent or a tour operator sees a price on a Ryanair website, likes it, thinks he'll sell it to some of his customers, books it, and sells it on to his customers. Um, 
Now, this is how travel agents operate the world over mm. with practically every other airline in the world except Ryanair. Ryanair um, doesn't like this, and it calls them screen scrapers. That's the polite word that Michael O'Leary uses. He has been known to call them pirates, uh, a term I, of course, for legal reasons, do not endorse. But um, what happens is Ryanair just doesn't like travel agents, doesn't like tour operators, has as little as possible to do with them. And the main reason for that, even though Michael O'Leary says that these guys cost his customers money because of add-ons, you know, somebody is, is, is booking or there's a late booking or whatever, the fee is increased by the travel agent or by the, the tour operator. In fact, the real reason is the, they sell the customers things that Ryanair wants mm. to sell them. Mm. Um, for example, Carhar. Yeah, so they, they want direct access to their customers and they want to be the ones who are flogging them the additional hotel rooms, uh, the car hires. But just want to, before we move on to that part of it, go back to the to the companies themselves. Who are we talking about here, the sites that we'd all be familiar with and logging on to, like to try and compare and contrast? Well, most of them, in fact, are, are international um, sites which we don't, we don't see much of in this country, although they do act as an agent for other um, uh, travel agents that we might be more familiar with. Um, there has been a series of, of these um, things. Travel Box was the, the um, one that had won the landmark case. It's a UK online travel agent. Um, and it, but it hasn't always been lucky with the, the, this course of, course of action. In November, it lost a high court case against On the Beach, again, what Michael O'Leary would call a pirate or a screen scraper, um, which had been packaging Ryanair flights with Sun Destination holidays. Mm. Two, over two million euros worth of the flights were cancelled by Ryanair for one reason or another. Uh, but Ryanair had refused to refund the cost of the flights and this uh, operator uh, on the beach went to the High Court and got a judgment for that money in its favour. So Ryanair has to pay that money over now. Mm. So they've had mixed fortunes with this, but when they won the, um, the travel box uh, case, other big operators, um, big uh, tour operators, online tour operators and travel agents, withdrew their business from Ryanair. So, and who are they, Jerry? Who who are we talking about there now? Well, there are, there were a series of them. Um, the so the likes of Booking dot com and those big ones that we'd know. And that sort of thing, yeah. So these big companies like Booking dot com and Kayak and removing Ryanair from their sites. What effect does that have on the Ryanair company and the flights? What what happened next? Well, it appears to have costed millions in revenue. Because what it effectively did was it had to it said it had to reduce prices to um, get in business to to counteract the loss of this business from the the big screen scrapers the, the, the these intermediaries that Ryanair is so opposed to. Now, the the, the only figure we've got from Ryanair so far is about two percent that they they the, the the loss of this business accounted for about two percent of its revenues. Mm. which is fairly significant uh, in Ryanair's case because it, it tends to try and get more than 90% of its seats booked for every flight. So 2% is, um, that's 
two seats per plane, should we say, you know, it, it's fairly significant. Absolutely. Um, the, the other, they mentioned there earlier, Jerry, about the third party um, sales pitch, if you like, from Ryanair directly to customers, which is the real thing behind this. Um, they, they want direct access to the customers. Any any idea or transparency about what that's worth to the company? Well, it's very significant. Just to give you some broad brush figures, Ryanair um, has an income of about seven billion in fair income. Now that's fair income. Mm. It has three point eight billion euros worth of what they call ancillary income. So over half of uh, again, no, well, yeah, actually less than half. Okay, sorry, my sums aren't about, great. Yeah, but the the, the ancillaries are about fifty five percent of fair income and about 35% of Ryanair's total income. So ancillaries are about a third of its total income. Now, when you look at how fuel has gone up uh, in the past year or two, uh, wages have gone up, it would surprise me if Ryanair is making much of a profit on fares alone. In other words, if it didn't have this ancillary income, would would it be able to produce these wonderful profits, which are fairly large and and uh, very, very um, impressive, and shareholders love it. But ancillary income, so, is very, very important for Ryanair. If it didn't have it, as I say, it would barely break even, I think, mm. at the moment with, with fuel costs so high. Yeah, it, so, those, th- those figures, when you say them like that, it, it does make sense. Where do you think this is going, Jerry? Well, I, there's, I have two um, thoughts on this. Ryanair could be pivoting back towards travel agents. Um, because it signed two deals over the past month with travel agents, with tour operators in particular, allowing um, tour operators, there's a New Zealand one, for example, and I think there's a British one, um, allowing them to book Ryanair flights to to be meshed in with package holidays. Now, this is fairly unusual for Ryanair. Mm. And you have to ask yourself, are they going to pivot? Are they going to go back to using travel agents when you see the sort of income that they can get in terms of filling the seats, you know, between 25 and 60 percent, as I say, for your Lufthansa's, your Air France's, your, your, your British Airways, that sort of thing. Um, but against that, their fares are very low um, and their fares are barely economic, I would say, in mm. terms of, of, of filling seats. They're buying a huge fleet of aircraft um, and, it, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether... They, they can survive without the ancillary income and the way to protect the ancillary income. The, the big ticket ancillary items, of course, are hotel rooms and car. Yeah, maybe they, they know something about our consumer behaviour that we haven't all exactly cottoned on to yet. Maybe people are shifting back toward uh, travel agents a bit more. Maybe it's about the ESG targets. Who knows? But uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that there's a strategy behind it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. I'm speaking with Jerry Byrne, who is an aviation journalist. Jerry, you mentioned there um, the Ryanair fleet. Um, the other way that Ryanair were in the news this week is Michael O'Leary offering to step in and pick up more Boeing 737 MAX aircraft. This is the one that has been involved in quite some controversy over the past month. Um, is that something, I mean, their, their, their fleet is Boeing anyway, is that something that could affect them reputationally as well? 
Uh, I don't think so. Um, not at this stage. I mean, they survived the, the Max 9 disaster. And the, the, this was the, 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 the situation where there were two fatal accidents, in one in Indonesia and the other one, I think, in North Africa, where the aircraft uh, crashed with all hands and lost everybody. All the passengers, all the crew were killed. Um, I think about 300 people in total. Uh, because of a flaw in the software which managed the aircraft. I won't go into any great detail, but it was completely Boeing's fault. Um, it had made this major change in the software, uh, the aircraft handling software, and basically didn't tell anyone about it. You mm. know? So it took the pilots by surprise, and they, they weren't able to control the aircraft. That was the biggest challenge, I think, that Boeing faced, because people actually died in those situations. Ryanair declared it was keeping its order. It had an order in for, um, I can't remember the exact figure, I think it was 75, possibly more, of the, the, the MAX 9. And it said it was keeping its order in and persisted with it. It didn't suffer any reputational damage. This latest accident where a door panel blew out and could have sucked several people to their death were it not for the fact that they were strapped in. Um, the the this is, nobody was killed. That's the first thing to be said. Mm. There were a few other flaws with the aircraft. There were loose bolts in the tail in the elevator system, which controls the rising and lowering of the aircraft in the air. And a couple of other items like that. Very, very sloppy work, I have to say. In all my years of, of writing and commenting on aviation, I've never never uh, come across such, such a litany of potential disaster items coming from Boeing. Ryanair, in fact, has installed its own engineers in Boeing. It's, it's, it, this is how bad it is mm. to, to watch the, the production and to keep an eye on how its aircraft are being built. And this, again, is almost unprecedented action that Ryanair, that airlines have to put their own people into the, into the, the, the factories to make sure that, that the aircraft are turning out properly. So against that, I, I would say no, no reputational damage. Yeah, he so has said that if anybody does cancel, he'll buy the aircraft. Yeah, like he's buying up everything at the moment, uh, including houses. Jerry, what did you make of their foray into the housing market this week? Well, it's it's not unusual. Um, quite a number of organisations have bought homes in and around Dublin um, to, especially multinationals. And Ryanair at this stage is a multinational. Ryanair also, uh, what makes it a little bit different from Aer Lingus, now I don't know whether Aer Lingus has gone out and bought 40 houses, but um, and I doubt if it does, is that Ryanair tends to have, for a variety of reasons, tends to have more foreign... Yeah, employees. more people in... Yeah. Because Irish people don't seem to be going to work for Ryanair in the same numbers as they did before. Yeah. No. There are reasons for that. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes practical sense and business sense from their point of view, but we, we'll watch this space with interest for now. We're going to have to leave it there. Jerry, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. That was Jerry Byrne, aviation journalist. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Just a reminder that while we broadcast at this time on Sunday, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app.
Next week, we've got an incredible story lined up for you about two very wealthy billionaires who lived large and lost even larger. But I want to uh, thank all of today's guests for spending some time with us and giving us their very valuable insights. My thanks also to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy. Simon Keane was on research and Hugo da Silva Scott was on sound. If you have any comments on any of items from today, you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. Anton Savage is up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots more. But for now, for Taking Stock, that's me, Mandy Johnston. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.